two-thirds of the way through summer, and I haven't talked much about my garden. I cut back this year. It's down from 50 yards long to about 35 yards. I started germinating my seeds late, so the whole operation was far behind. I have a row of Kennebec potatoes. It's a white potato that keeps well in a root cellar. We store them up to nine months, and they came up beautifully this year. Gorgeous vegetation, pretty white flowers, and no bug problem. They have an expression around here. If you go out in the early summer and dig some fresh potatoes to eat, they call it graveling, graveling potatoes. The first time I do that, I'm always nervous. Will I have any potatoes? Will they be big, pretty, bug-infested? Sometimes potatoes will produce a lot of foliage and practically no potatoes. So I went out with my potato fork, dug in, turned up the soil. Man, oh man, big, white, gorgeous potatoes. I brought a basket in to dawn. Hey, if you make mashed potatoes, I'll grill a steak, I said. And that was a mighty fine dinner, served with a bottle of bold Napa Zinfandel. I have bell peppers, lots of jalapenos, a whole row of Japanese shishito peppers. There are two kinds of Japanese eggplants, kurumi long and one called moneymaker. Oh my, do I have eggplants. I've been making them in stir fries, pasta sauces, making fried eggplants. You know, you slice it, dip it in flour, then in egg wash, and then in panko breadcrumbs. Fry it in olive oil, brown and crisp. Serve it with fresh lime juice. It is so tasty. And, you know, it's just like my mama used to make when I was growing up. By now, though, I've had enough. I told Don the other day. I'm baba ganoushed to death. No more eggplants. Hello, this is Ernie again. Ernie Johnson, the founder of Anashira. I'm glad to have you back with me again. My sponsors at Anashira say I should give you an update on the goats in every episode. But there's not much new. Two of the young ones are very big, mama's kids. She allowed them to drink as much milk as she could produce. Razzie's kids are smaller. She was not generous in letting them nurse. They eat like crazy now, but they're not growing very quickly. It's time now to go back to my early college days in this week's episode of Stories from Anashira. So I shared with you some time ago how I left Oberhausen, Germany, and went back to California to continue my college work. It was a strange time. Now, when you drive around, you see signs today, hiring, help wanted, need part-timers, and so on. In those days, late 60s, it was hard for a kid to get a job. I had no scholarship for college, and I needed some cash. I did yard work, found a dairyman who wanted someone to walk door-to-door through the neighborhood, well, through all the neighborhoods of Fresno, and hang flyers that said, Milky Way Dairy, best milk in the universe. 
I got a job with the Cancer Society driving patients to their doctor's appointments. At the time, I was driving a 1949 four-door Chevy, three on the tree. The paint was green, very faded, chipped. It didn't look like much, but I got the people where I needed to get them to. It had a big back seat, so I could just cram them in there. I worked and went to school. I thought I'd be an engineer at the start. Then I went to register and saw the required classes for a mechanical engineer. Huh. Differential calculus, chemistry for engineers, physics with calculus, vector calculus, and on and on. Where are the electives? There were none. No literature, no history, nothing that I considered good for my soul. So I did not declare a major at the start, and I took German literature, a Russian class, a class in enology, some theater. Hey, I'm supposed to find myself in college, right? So I did well in all of my classes except political science. I already had no use for politics. I didn't go to that class. I crammed for that final. I knew I should have dropped that class long ago. I was lucky to skate out with a C. I think that was the only C I got. In my second year, I saw a notice for a program called Junior Year Abroad. The university system had programs in Spain, France, Sweden, and Germany. I did some research. The program had two participating universities in Germany. The University of Heidelberg, Germany's oldest, dating back to 1386, sweet, and Die Freie Universität Berlin, the Free University of Berlin. It was rated the top German university for students from abroad. And I love West Berlin and wanted to go back, not just for a visit as a tourist, but to live and study there. I had taken numerous classes in German composition, philology, and literature. I went to my best professor for some advice. He told me he thought it was a great idea. This program is good because you'll take all of your classes in German. You'll have the freedom to choose from a broad spectrum of coursework. He said all students would attend two months of intense German studies at a Goethe Institute. Everyone must pass a comprehensive test in written and spoken German. You won't have any problem with those exams. He said he knew they were looking for a few students with German skills and experience in Germany to act as chaperone or guardian to monitor the students. He said he'd be glad to write a letter recommending me. Oh, and there is compensation for that position too, he said. So I went home and talked to my dad. I needed his financial help. Boy, I was pleasantly surprised when he said he'd help me out most generously. So I applied to the program, was quickly accepted, and I applied for the scholarship as assistant to the head of the program in Germany, and I was accepted. All right. Now I'd have a small income, not much, but something. This was in the middle of the Vietnam War, and the draft was taking more young men every month. I knew I'd have to perform academically, or I'd lose my student deferment and be sucked into the U.S. Army. Not something I wanted to see. I was still pretty clean cut at this time. Beards and long hair were frowned upon by businesses in Fresno. Good luck getting a job if you looked anything like a radical. 
But I was going to West Berlin for a year, the wildest city in Germany, if not all of Europe. I started letting my hair grow and started a Van Dyke beard, similar to the one worn by Rudolph Valentino. My mom and dad and younger sisters drove me to the airport in San Francisco, where I was to get on a charter flight to Paris. My little sister Diane looked at me and said, Are you scared, Ernie? No, I'm not. Do you know anybody in Berlin? No, Diane, I don't. Won't you be lonely, all alone? Uh, yeah, maybe a little, but I'll meet lots of people. I'll be fine. You know, I've done this before. You better come home, she said. Now, Diane was about 14 at this time. She was worried that I'd just go and disappear into Germany and Eastern Europe and never come home. Don't worry, kid. I'll be back in a year. I said goodbye, got on the plane with about 150 other kids from California universities, heading to school in France, Sweden, and Germany. This time I flew in a jet, not a DC-3. And we flew nonstop to the East Coast, refueled, and continued on to Paris. Flying was different in those days. Much more leg room, more flight attendants per passengers. They actually attempted to make food appealing. They actually gave you service in those days. I could see right away that most of the students seemed to be mature and well-behaved. Some were overwhelmed by the free wine and cigarettes. I hoped that they were heading to France or Sweden. Most of them had never been to Europe before and were somewhat apprehensive. So we fly into Paris Charles de Gaulle Airport early in the morning, clear customs, loaded up and boarded buses for the next leg. I rounded up the kids heading for the Goethe Institute in Passau. Like I told you earlier, these buses were not like the typical Greyhound bus. They had comfortable seats, wraparound windows, polite driver. And if you look at a map, Europe seems small compared to the USA. And it is, but not that small. It took about 11 hours to get to Paso. Now, some of those kids had been traveling for hours just to get to SFO. Then two long flights then a 10-hour bus trip. We'd been up for over 24 hours. Many of us fell asleep for the first couple of hours. The others had their eyes to the windows. The driver stopped halfway there outside of Mannheim. We get out, ate lunch at a rest stop. I, of course, had a big Bratwurst on a Birchen, that German roll, with German Zenth, that strong mustard, and a tall glass of Pilsner. Yes, it was good to be back. It seemed like forever, but it had been less than two years since I left Oberhausen. A few minutes after we got back on the Bundesautobahn 4, the driver got on the intercom. For those of you who will attend the University of Heidelberg, we are passing the Ausfahrt now, the exit. But we'll continue on a few hours to get to Passau. Those who had never been on an autobahn before were shocked. The bus driver was making good time, maybe 70, 75 miles an hour, but we were in the slow lane. Cars would come screaming past us, Mercedes, Porsches, doing 110 miles an hour and faster. I mean, flying. 
So we finally got to Passau and were dropped off at the Goethe Institute, where we were to study. There were no dormitories at this school. We'd all stay as boarders at a number of private residences, which had been assigned to us. I, as well as a couple of other guys, were assigned to a large house owned by a Mrs. Fuchs, known by everybody as Frau Fuchs. A couple of us got in a cab and headed over there. We met her, and she showed us our rooms. I was to share a room with a strange guy from Thailand. He spoke a few words of English and even less German. So we would be served breakfast every morning in Frau Fuchs's large dining room. Very simple. Brötchen, the ubiquitous breakfast rolls, butter, and marmalade. On weekends, we'd find a few slices of cheese. Oh, and a cup of peppermint tea. Frau Fuchs was not going to spring for coffee. The other meals were interesting. Each student received, as part of their residence, two meal tickets a day, one for lunch and one for dinner. The value of these was three marks and 50 pfennig, drei fünfzig. Coincidentally, the exchange rate for the dollar was one dollar got you three marks 50. Almost all of the restaurants in town accepted these meal tickets. They committed to providing a lunch or dinner for each one. Unfortunately, it wasn't generally a very abundant meal. You get maybe a small bowl of soup and a plate of boiled potatoes, a couple of vegetables, and a small piece of chicken or pork. You could always order a bigger meal, but then you'd have to pay the difference in cash or give an extra meal ticket. So the next morning was to be the first day of testing. We'd each take oral and written exams to determine which level of German studies we'd be assigned to. If we wanted to be successful immediately as students at the university, we'd need to reach a certain level at the Goethe Institute, Certificate C1, called Scientific German. A student would need 800 to 1,000 hours of instruction to reach this level. Are they kidding? I said to the guy next to me. We have only two months. At five hours a day, that's only 200 hours of classes. Oh, the Goethe Institute was named after the great German poet, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. It was founded in 1951 and now has 159 locations worldwide. It primarily promotes the study of the German language. Much of its budget comes from the, Fed, the German foreign office and the rest from tuition. At that time, there were many fewer locations, and most of them were in beautiful small German towns like Passau or Tübingen or Nuremberg so that students would get a positive idea of Germany. We were all focused on passing the feared Deutsche Sprachprüfung für den Hochschulzugang, the German language exam for university entrance, also known as the DSH. Don't pass, don't get into school. So we each got assigned to our level of intensive German studies. Now everyone had to take a test of fluency in German before we were accepted to this program, but it was not really as difficult as the one we'd have to pass in the future. And this is the first crisis for some of the students under my care. Ernie, there's no way I can pass that exam. German was never this hard in my classes. 
Ernie, I don't understand anything. I'll fail and be sent home. This is crazy, Ernie. All right, settle down. You have five hours of classes a day. Pay attention. Do the work. Study hard every afternoon. Speak as little English as you can. You'll get there. Hey, folks. Uh, you may hear a bit of a thunderstorm rattling around out there. Well, it may seem like there's thunder and lightning and rain every day here. It's not true. This will be like the first thunderstorm that we've had since I last recorded one of these episodes. So I told him, watch TV. Soap operas are the best. Watch the news. Listen to the radio. Don't worry. You've got eight weeks. Uh, I didn't really tell him they did have to worry. We jump right into classes the next day. Five classes, starting at 8.30 and ending at 1 p.m. I was in an advanced class. I thought my German was pretty good, but this course was harder than I imagined. Five hours was a grind and then homework. There were always a couple of kids looking for me in the breaks. Ernie, I can't do it. My brain turns to mush after the second hour. Sure you can. Just shut off your worrying. Try to think in German. One day at a time. One hour at a time. I came to realize that there were two main groups studying there. The first group seemed to have no financial worries. They'd eat whatever and whenever they wanted. Did whatever they wanted. The second group was my group, people who didn't have a lot of money, who really had to make do with that three marks 50 meal ticket. The main bulk of this group was from Czechoslovakia. Now, I'd read about what was happening in that country. Czechoslovakia was a communist state under the thumb of the Soviet Union since the end of World War II. In early 1968, the reformist Alexander Dubček was elected as the first secretary of the Communist Party. The Prague Spring was a period of only eight months, and Dubček granted additional rights to citizens, partial decentralization of the economy, and democratization. He loosened restrictions on the media, speech, and travel. And these reforms were not received well by the Soviets. Negotiations were held over several months, and they got nowhere. On August 20th and 21st, the Soviets sent half a million Warsaw Pact troops and tanks to secure and occupy the country. The New York Times reported that over 650,000 troops equipped with the most modern and sophisticated weapons in the Soviet military catalog invaded a large wave of illegal immigration swept the nation afterwards. Now, the Czechs prevented their own citizens from leaving by establishing a forbidden zone of up to two kilometers from the border. No civilians could reside there, and there was a signal fence at that point. There was a guarded strip with a barbed wire fence. Originally, it was an electric fence with 5,000 volts. The border was filled with watchtowers, and various types of landmines were used. Many young Czechs ignored the danger and crossed into West Germany, and Passau was about 20 miles from the border, and many came through. The German government granted scholarships to the Goethe Institute to thousands of these young people, and there were about 50 in our institute in Passau. 
They were all about my age, give or take a few years. We were all in the same budget, minimal. They received a small stipend from the West Germans, and of course, they had their meal tickets. But that was it. They had all hated leaving their families and friends behind, and they didn't know if they'd ever see them again. These checks mainly stayed to themselves. I'd talk with a few of them who were in my class, especially during breaks. They said they were amazed at all of the material goods, the cars, clothing, electronics. They were shocked by the amount of money Germans seemed to have. They'd go to the markets and walk through staring at the meats and produce, especially when they'd recently arrived. They said they didn't believe that the Soviets would ever release their iron grip on Czechoslovakia. But that was as far as we went in political discussions. No one talked about their actual escape. And they studied hard every day, all day. Like I said, my roommate was a young guy from Thailand. His father ran the import-export division of the government. So he was pretty wealthy. He'd sit on his bed across from mine in our shared room much of the day and into the night in lotus position, praying. He wore a leather aviator helmet. He said it had belonged to his older brother, who'd been a pilot in the Thai Air Force and killed in Vietnam. His most frequent conversation with us was the phrase, Dom Dom. We had no idea what it meant until we learned it meant cheers or to your health, or that's what we thought. I couldn't pronounce his name, so I called him Dom Dom. Down the hall lived an American kid who just graduated with a degree in applied physics from Princeton University. It had taken him only two years. He was so brilliant that he'd been awarded a full scholarship to the Max Planck Institute for Physics in Munich to study astroparticle physics. With only one caveat, he had to pass the DSH, the language exam. Visualize a light bulb. Imagine a head shaped like that placed on a small, thin trunk. That was he. I called him Egghead. After I'd been there a few days, he grabbed me one afternoon. Ernie, how do you do it? To what? Speak German so well. Well, I've worked at it for quite a while. Ernie. I'm dead if I don't learn German and pass the DSH. I've been here for a month, and I can't understand a thing. They'll send me home, a failure. I couldn't believe it. Hey, you're some kind of brilliant scientist, right? And that's what they say. You understand these equations that rocket scientists write all over the chalkboards? Yeah, most of them. Sometimes I have to look at them twice. Well, why don't you look at the German language the same way? I try, I try. It just doesn't work. I hear it. It's like a bunch of people blowing noisemakers in my ears. I speak and it comes out the same. I tried coaching him new ideas to find some ways for him to approach German. When I left two months later, poor Egghead was still in a state of despair. I heard later he'd given up on German and gone back to the U.S. to attend MIT his first failure. One night I'd had my dinner and was walking around through the streets. There's a restaurant chain in Germany, small chain, it's called Wiener Wald, Vienna Woods, which specializes in Hindi, a type of chicken roasted on a spit. 
It's delicious, but it was out of my budget. There was a location in Paso, and one window opened up onto the chickens revolving around on the spit, juices dripping. The smell was magical. Without realizing it, I'd been standing there for a while, visions of roast chicken in my head. All of a sudden, I turn around, and there's a guy standing next to me, also staring at the chickens. I look at him. Do I know you? Do you attend the Goethe Institute? I asked him in German. Ja, das stimmt. Mein Name ist Moshi. He said he did. His name was Moshi. I introduced myself. Turns out he was Palestinian, also there on a scholarship. I'd never met a Palestinian before. Our first conversation had nothing to do with politics. He said, is that beautiful chicken or what? It is a beautiful chicken. I bet it tastes like heaven, I said. Do you have chicken that beautiful in America? Not that I've seen, Moshe. One day soon I'm going to eat one of those, he said. I think I will too. Next door to Domdom and me, in a small, simple bedroom, lived a young Frenchman by the name of Joël. He worked for the famous Hotel Ritz in Paris and had been sent there by the company. He's a good-looking guy, had that Parisian sort of short-trim beard like a two-day growth. There was also a contingent of Latinos at the Institute, women and men. Most seemed well-off and didn't want anything to do with us Americans. Joel went out with several of the women, frequently with a Colombian girl, nice-looking, nice smile. I didn't know her name. Those two months in Paso passed quickly. My California group took its final exams, each of us competing at our own level. We all did pretty well, enough to leave Paso and head off to Heidelberg or Berlin in a few days. We head out on our penultimate night and splurge on a couple of beers. I take a break and go out for some fresh air. I'm sitting on a bench, and this girl sits down at the end. I look over at her and recognized her. She's a student at the Institute. Hey, do I know you? Don't you go out with Joelle? I asked her. I did a few times. I don't anymore. We sat and talked for a while, had a few laughs. She said her name was Maria, and she was from Colombia. Colombia, not Colombia. Colombia. We sat there a while longer. I told her my group was leaving for Berlin in two days. Suddenly, out of nowhere, I said, Hey, you want to go out to dinner with me tomorrow? We'll celebrate. She stares at me for a moment and says, Yeah, okay, where are you going? Not sure. Some people are going to some cellar restaurant. I'll let you know. I had a couple of extra meal tickets and a few marks. I figured I'd be okay. So we meet at this restaurant the next evening. What are you going to eat? She asks. I don't know. That chicken cordon bleu sounds pretty good, I said. We had a few glasses of wine. Food was good. We're having a good time. Joel and a few buddies were also having dinner there. He sends over a nice bottle of wine. So we drank and laughed. The evening passes and it's time to pay the bill. It's high, way too high for me. I reach in my pocket and pull out two meal tickets and a couple of five mark pieces. Hey, Maria, I say to her, I'm in a bit of a bind. Can you lend me a few meal tickets? 
What? Lend you meal tickets? You don't have any money? Not enough. How many meal tickets do you need? Uh, I think about seven, maybe eight with a tip. You're a crazy American, she says. I've never seen this in my whole life. Well, neither have I. So now we've both had a new experience. So she hands me a stack of tickets and we head out. She's pretty silent until we get outside. Then she looks at me, smiles, and then starts to laugh. Well, Ernie, you're the cheekiest man I've ever met. Will I ever get that money back? Now, for sure, yeah, eventually. Give me your address. I walked home whistling, caught up with Joelle halfway home. What, you're not walking Maria home? No, man, I can't afford it. I'm already deep in debt. We laughed all the way home. I really didn't think I'd ever see that girl again. The next day I went to the station with my group of American students and we headed off to take a train, some of them to Heidelberg and the rest of us across East Germany to West Berlin. You know, I read a couple of articles recently. They were about a movement of people who no longer use soap or deodorant or shampoos. Some woman wrote an article that she was gonna test this for a month. She sprayed a living bacteria tonic on her skin that contained billions of ammonia-oxidizing bacteria, most commonly found in untreated water and dirt. The guy who invented this treatment, MIT trained, has not showered for the past 12 years. He occasionally takes a sponge bath to wash away grime, but says his skin's bacterial colony does the rest. The author writes that at the start of her trial, she began to regret her decision. Her hair turned a full turn darker for being coated in oil that her scalp couldn't stop producing. I slept with a towel over my pillow and found myself avoiding parties and public events. Mortified by my body odor, I kept my armpits pinned to my sides. Unless someone volunteered to sniff my armpit, one friend detected the smell of onions. She says that eventually my skin began to change for the better. It eventually actually became softer and smoother. As her experiment came to a close, she was reluctant to return to her old routine, but she did. Now, if you want to embark on the road of soap-free cleansing, give it a try. More power to you. If you don't want to go that far and still want softer skin, I encourage you to avoid mass-produced products that are really synthesized liquids, surfactants with lab-manufactured ingredients engineered to smell good and add moisture to replace the oils they wash away. An excellent alternative is to use my handcrafted goat milk soaps, which contain no petrochemical products or animal fats. They're made with vegetable oils, pure goat milk, and sodium hydroxide with natural scent essences. My most elemental soap is wild oats, unscented and pure. Get online right away and go to anashira.com and order some. Use discount code SUMMERSTORIES16. That's SUMMERSTORIES16 altogether for a 16% discount. I left you hanging here as we're on the train heading through East Germany. I'll continue the tale in my next episode of Stories 
from Anishiro.